great singing. You can be seated. Whew, I'm tired. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, this is a day of great joy as we remember that your son lives. But Father, may we never forget that his life, which he now lives, came after he suffered for sins. Not his own sins but the sins of his people and father as we reflect on this last week if we are honest lord our hearts our minds our actions at many times have been drawn away into sin where we have rejected the new life we have in Christ and we have gone to find life among the dead through sinful actions through seeking satisfaction in anything less than Christ So, Lord, as we come before your throne today, as we come before your word to hear from you, Father, we confess our sin and we find hope that every ounce of the penalty for that sin was given to your Son on the cross. And that we now, because he lives, can live unto a new life only because of what He has done. So, Father, bring our hearts into accord with Your Word today. May we put aside the distractions of this past week, the concerns of the upcoming week. And, Father, may we be captivated with the risen Christ, the hope, that He brings, and the transformation that new life in Him provides. We pray this all in Christ's name, pleading His blood. Amen. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. And we're going to be reading verses 6 through chapter 3, verse 4. Now, I, uh, someone pulled me aside and we, we upload our orders of worship onto a, a mobile hymn uh, site and they saw how long the passage was today and they said, wow, that's an awful lot for you to take in. And we're going to be reading the whole passage because I think it's, it does disservice to what Paul is saying to break it up into smaller sections, but we're going to be focusing on just a few main themes in this passage as we see Paul showing us the results of the resurrection You know, we all want to be certain and secure. We would like to be or have it said of us that we are rooted, built up, and established. 
We want stability. We want security. We want confidence. And as we look at the world around us, we see that that is something that is greatly lacking in our world today. Now, there are all sorts of ideas floating around the world today as to how we can have that level of confidence. Some call us to look to the government and political activism as a means of providing and making a secure world. Some think that cooperation together just as a society in general and and aiming for a better world or a better country, that that will bring about security. Others will use religious efforts as a means for hope, the things that we do in goodness. You know, it was a shame as I read this week and and actually saw, um, I read an article by uh, a man who's a New Testament scholar, and I saw a news story about a local church. They're talking about the resurrection. They're talking about focusing on that this time of year, and their conclusions were that we should work harder to make this world a better world. Now, that sounds great, right? I mean, who wouldn't want us to work harder to make this world a better place? But here's what we see throughout history. The reality is that none of these things can provide true confidence or security. Every government on the face of this planet, including our American government, is chocked full of corruption on both sides of the aisle. Our society continues to run headlong into corruption, denying some of the most basic truths of humanity as they do so. Religious leaders are often just as corrupt as the rest of the corrupt world. What we see is that the world is constantly pulling at us to seek security in their ways, their thoughts, their actions, their way of life. True security, security that endures, cannot be found if we look within ourselves. That is a message that flies in the face of what this world will tell you. This world will tell you to look within, to dig deep, and you can change the world. You cannot change the world. Left to yourself, you will only make the world worse. you will certainly not bring about security. So what are we to do? If true security, security that endures, cannot be found within ourselves, then we must look outward. We must look to something else that can bring about genuine transformation. And only Christ brings that transformation. He alone is the one who possesses the power to transform. And that transformation power is both displayed in His resurrection and provided to those who believe in Him through His resurrection. So Paul is going to call us here today to seek transformation through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look with me. 
in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, an empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by, any, by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its, through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also, will appear with Him in glory. There are two main things I'd like us to consider from this passage today. The first is that the resurrection displays Christ's dynamic power. The resurrection displays Christ's 
dynamic power. As we said, this world wants us to trust in ourselves or to trust in society or to trust in government or to trust in politics. This world calls us to trust in humanity. Well, what is humanity's track record? And what we see Paul bringing to the Colossian believers' uh, minds and to their attention here at the very beginning of our passage is that man is weak. That there are things that are fundamentally weak about humanity that show us we should no way, shape, or form be trusting in ourselves. What is that weakness? Well, we see, first of all, humanity is weak because it depends on human skill. See in verse 8, Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive. Now, what he's referring to there is that there is a a skillfulness or an ability that humanity has in trying to convince people of certain things. Paul here is envisioning the skillful rhetoric of those who seek to diminish the work of Christ. Now, here's the reality. There's a reason why the world goes headlong into looking at the world. Because those who promote the world are skillful. They're smart. I don't think we should take for granted or, or, or throw dispersions upon the intelligence of many people in the world. They can be very persuasive. Especially if they're giving away cars and houses like Oprah does. The world is skillful in the way that they bring about these things. They can be convincing. And Jesus actually speaks about how false Christ will one day appear. False prophets will arise. They'll perform great signs. They'll do wonders so that they could lead astray if it was possible. And praise God, it is not. But if it was possible to lead astray even the elect. And Paul brings that about here. Listen, the world can try to take us captive. Now, we have to recognize that there is a weakness in ourselves because we like the wisdom of the world. We like the skill that they provide. And so we can easily be led astray in our choices in entertainment, in the choices in where we consume news or media. Those things are all efforts of the world to try to take us captive. Humanity is weak because it provides human wisdom notice what he says here see that they no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition this philosophy that is referred to here this is the consideration and conclusions of those who love wisdom now this is not a wisdom from god but it is a wisdom produced by the efforts of men Now, Paul is not condemning philosophy or the study of philosophy per se. In fact, if we were to look at his his, uh, message and his sermon to those at Mars Hill, he actually draws upon certain philosophers. But the error comes when we seek wisdom apart from God. The wisdom of God is foolishness to men, which means that the wisdom of men is what? Foolishness to God. So what we must recognize is that human philosophy exists to the exclusion of the truth that we know about God. 
There's an individual who is extremely popular these days. He is a philosopher. He is a clinical psychologist. Um, and he has become very popular even among Christian groups. His name, maybe you've heard of him, is Jordan Peterson. Very convincing. Says a lot of things I would agree with. But he's not a believer, at least to the knowledge that I know of. And the philosophy he provides ultimately is based not in the eternal principles of God's word, but in the intricate machinations of his head. Humanity is weak, we see, thirdly, because it employs deception. Look at what he says here. This philosophy comes with empty deceit. Paul here is pointing to a reality that stands behind all the promises of human effort. All the promises of human philosophy. It is empty. It is a lie. Now, Paul likely does not have in mind open lies where people know that they're lying to you, although that certainly may be the case here. Rather, he is likely referring to the fact that the world believes its own lies. In fact, sin came into the world because Eve believed what? A lie. And so the world today is steeped in all their promises and all the things that they say that are going to bring about transformation of society. Guess what? It's a lie. It will never bring about true change, true security. Because it is dependent upon human tradition. The very humanness of human effort is a weakness. Listen, nothing is new under the sun. The same arguments that were made, that are being made today, have been made centuries, millennia ago. Because we ultimately are just drawing upon human tradition. And finally, we see humanity is weak because it is bound to the created order. Paul says something here about this philosophy, this empty deceit that is used or is bound to human tradition by which people try to take us captive. It is according to the elemental spirits. Or we could say this elemental principles. Paul brings up a glaring weakness in humanity. We are created. We're bound to this physical world. Here, here's, here's the reality that we should keep in front of ourselves all the time. We are not God. And so by that very reality, there is a limitation, a weakness to us. God created Adam and Eve in perfection. He set them into a perfect environment. Their background was perfect. Their environment was perfect. They were made of this world. And what did they do when confronted with temptation? They sinned. We carry that same essential limitation within us. And then finally, we see that humanity is weak because it rejects Christ. Notice the conclusion that Paul drives to here in verse 8. 
This philosophy, this empty deceit, this human tradition that's according to the elemental spirits or the elementary principles of this world are not according to Christ. There is only one alternative to seeking hope through human efforts. Christ. And when we seek seek change, when we seek our hope, when we seek to find security in anything else but Christ, we are rejecting Him. You, You can't be in between the two. Christ calls you to leave all and follow Him. That's what Paul brings us to recognize here. Listen, to trust in ourselves is to reject Christ. So Paul begins by showing us the weakness of humanity, but then we see by God's grace, hallelujah, we see the display of Christ's divine power. We see, first of all, that Christ's incarnation speaks of his divine power. He says, not according to Christ. And he says, now here, here, he he then follows it up by talking about who Christ is. So by displaying the glories of Christ, he shows how foolish it is to follow vain tradition. And notice what he says here, first thing about Christ. In him, verse 9, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily what i mean this this seems outrageous how can the whole fullness of deity dwell in a body and this is because in his incarnation the divine second person of the trinity emptied himself for the purpose of truly being made in fashion as a man As Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, who though he was in the form of God did not count that equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself and he took upon himself the form of the servant and was made or being born in the likeness of men. Now what's amazing to recognize here is that at no point did Christ leave or give up in the sense that it was no longer there, his true divinity. Look at what Paul is saying here again. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells in a body. And so what we find here is that in adding a human nature to his divine nature, Christ then becomes the only person who can bridge the gap between those who are subject to the elementary principles of this world and who he is. Christ was a real human. He experienced genuine humanity. He was born. He grew. He tired. He experienced pain. He was hungry. He understood all of these things. He was and is the God-man. And having experienced true humanity, he yet is not limited by humanity because he is God and man in one. One person, two natures. Now this reality contrasts greatly with us, doesn't it? How many natures do we have? One. You know, I turned 40 last year. My humanity is starting to really be seen 
Roll out of the bed in the morning. Oh, where'd that come from? Well, Christ was and is human in every sense of the word. He does not speak. He does not act according to the elementary principles of this world. He is beyond them. And that shows us that there has been and there will only ever be one person who meets those qualifications, Jesus Christ. We also see that his position speaks of divine power. If we see in verse 10, he speaks of how he is the one who is the head of all rule and authority. There is no greater sovereign than Christ. He is King of kings. What this means then is that Jesus doesn't need to ask permission from anyone to do anything. The Father has delivered to him all authority, as he says in Matthew 28, 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's authorized to do as he sees fit in this world and in the spiritual realm. He reports to no one. And then we see, thirdly, Paul drawing to a conclusion how this divine power in his incarnation, how this position of absolute authority is demonstrated to us. It is demonstrated through his resurrection. Look at what he says. In verse 11, in him ye also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. The climax or the crescendo of what Paul's argument here is, show, is in showing the weakness of men contrasted with the power of Christ is that Jesus has all power because He raised from the dead. This becomes the basis of our hope. When he talks about in verse 6 that we can be rooted and built up and established, all of these things are dependent upon the power that Christ possesses. And that power is displayed in what we celebrate today and every Sunday. He lives. So he is someone who, as Paul says in verse 15, disarmed by the work of his resurrection, disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. There is a reality that the resurrection of Jesus Christ brings to us to recognize that no matter who you may be, you can be the speaker of the house, you can be the majority leader of the Senate, you can be the president of the United States, you can be the King of England. Listen, you ain't got nothing on Jesus Christ. He is the supreme authority. Now, the question that Paul is going to now have us grapple with we love to hear that, right? Jesus is in control. He's, he's the authority. 
do we act like that? And Paul is actually going to draw a very clear connection between the resurrection of Christ and how that now impacts our lives every single day. Because we see, secondly, that the resurrection brings transformative life. Not just life, transformative life. We see that this transformation begins through union with Christ. Look with me again in verse 6 and 7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith. The first thing we see is that this union that we have with Christ's life that transforms us comes through faith. Paul uses the term in him, and actually this is a common term that Paul uses in all his writings. In in all of Paul's writings in the New Testament, this phrase appears 33 times. Six of those times are in our section of, of Scripture that we're looking at today. Paul is referring here to the doctrine of union with Christ. Now, there are glories to mine in that doctrine that would keep us here till next Sunday, and we still wouldn't finish getting through all of them. So we don't have the time to meet out all of that, but I would say that it is one of the most significant doctrines in Scripture. By virtue of our union with Christ, all of the benefits and the blessings that Christ deserves are now counted to us. It is remarkable that in our union with Christ, we are truly blessed in the Beloved. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is ours in Christ. Now, how do we access that blessing? It comes through faith. Notice what he says, rooted, built up in him, and established in the faith. So if, as we began today, if we want to have a life that is secure, that is solid, that is founded, that we don't have to worry about, that we can have assurance in. It begins with faith in Jesus Christ, which means that we abandon faith in ourselves. I think so often people think about faith as adding faith uh, in Jesus to the faith they have in other things. That will not do. You have to place all of your hope all of your faith in Christ alone. And if you don't do that, you'll never have security in this life or certainly in the life to come. Our hope must be built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is what? Sinking sand. This is what Christ sought. In John 17, he says in three different passages how he prayed that we would be in him and that he would be in us. So this union that we have, it comes through faith. Now, what does this union provide us? Well, it begins with union with Christ's 
death. Notice what he says in verse 12. We have been buried with him in baptism. Now the baptism he's referring to here may be water baptism, but it is not the actual physical act that he's focusing on, but rather the reality that stands behind that. What does baptism show us? That I have died with Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism. Paul says it this way elsewhere. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. Guess who no longer lives? Me. But rather Christ lives in me. In Romans chapter 6. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into what? Death. We have been united with Him in a death like His. Jesus tells His disciples that if anyone would come after Me, if anyone would follow Him, they have to deny themselves and take up their what? Cross. What is a cross? It's the instrument of of your death. I think we do a disservice to some extent when we clean up the cross. I'm not trying to be hyper-judgmental here, but we make it and fashion it out of gold. We put it on chains. We wear it as a, as a fancy piece of jewelry. In the first century, the cross would be more akin to the hangman's noose. And Jesus tells us to take it up. Because we are united with Him in His death. Listen, we die with Christ. Our sinful lives, the life that is focused on looking within, is killed on the cross. So Paul here is not referring to our physical death. That will one day come if the Lord tarries, but rather it is speaking of the fact that the death that he died, he died to what? To sin once for all. But the life he lives, he leaves to God. So you must consider yourselves what? Dead to sin. This is where the power of Christ begins. Not Beginning with the fact that, oh, I'm going to get to live forever and then live any way I want to. No, you're dead to sin. And so that union with Christ's brings about then this wonderful hope that we have union with Christ's resurrection. If we by faith are united with Christ's death on the cross, we are also united with him in his resurrection. Notice what Paul says here. In verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Do you see what Paul is saying here? It's remarkable. Today we celebrate the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead. Every Sunday we celebrate that reality. But we should also recognize that if we are in Him by faith, we're celebrating our own resurrection from the dead. That we have been passed from death unto life. 
the significance of the resurrection is seen in the truth that when Christ raised from the dead, so did I. And if you are in Christ by faith, so did you. This is spiritual life for us today. Christ clears the way for our life through his death and then by by providing forgiveness of sins, by nailing the record of death that stood against us to his cross, he proclaimed, Te telestai, it is what? Finished! And then three days later, he rose from the dead, showing us that death is not the end game of what Christ has brought about, but rather it is transformed life. Which brings us then to see what resurrection life looks like. Now, we've looked at parts of this section. I'm going to skip over verses 16 through 23 because I'm already over the time, technically. I don't pay attention to the clock anyway, so what does it matter? Now, I think we have to end by looking at what, is, what does this look like now? If I have been united to Christ by faith, and that unites me to his death, which now unites me to have new life through his resurrection, not something that I look forward to in the future. Listen, Paul is not talking about the fact that one day we will be able to live forever. Now, while the resurrection does provide that, and in 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about that, that's not what he's focused on here. Rather, the resurrection of Jesus Christ impacts you right now and tomorrow and the next day, and every day in between, because it affects who you are at the very core of your life. So what does resurrection life look like? Well, we see that in verse 3. If then you have been, or chapter 3, verse 1, if then you have been raised with Christ. So if these things are true, you've rejected trust in mankind, which is weak, you've trusted in Christ alone, you've been united with his death and resurrection. If that's true... What does resurrection life look like? Well, we seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. The first thing we see is that resurrection life is filled with Christ. He is your everything. Your everything. And if Jesus Christ is not your everything, then you need to take a long, hard look at what you're truly trusting in. He must be your life. If you look at what Paul said in chapter 2, verse 10, this one in whom the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, Paul says remarkably that we have been filled in him. What? How is that possible? Knowing the power that Christ has demonstrated in which we share by faith, how can we seek lesser things? How can we have our life filled with lesser things? And then we see, as Paul says, that this resurrection life then frees us from elemental principles. Look again at verse 20. If with Christ you died to what? 
the elemental principles of this world. This is, this is remarkable to me, what Paul is doing here. Because remember, one of the things he said about the weakness of humanity is that it was tied and bound to the elemental principles of this world. In Christ, guess what? We're not bound by the elementary principles of this world anymore. We have spiritual life that defies this natural realm. We're freed from that. We are, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? New creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So we are filled with Christ. And we're freed from this world. So now we live a life that first of all seeks Christ as we saw in chapter 3, verse 1. Seek the things that are above above where Christ is. All of life must be centered around the pursuit of Christ. Listen, if I could switch around verse 8 where he tells us to not be held captive by the vain philosophy of this world. Let me phrase it this way. Paul is saying, see to it that you are taken captive by Christ according to the proclamations of His Word, according to Him in whom the whole fullness of God dwells and not according to the traditions of men. Listen, this world pales in comparison to who our Lord is. How dare we? How dare we go back to that way of thinking. We have to seek Christ. We have to think on Christ. Look in verse 2 of chapter 3. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Reality is we still live in a world where philosophy, empty deceit, and human tradition is going to beckon us to abandon Christ. This world is going to call you to set your hope in everything else but Christ. And so how do we combat that temptation? We think about Him. Let me ask you this week, how many times were your thoughts drawn to Christ? Or how many times were your thoughts drawn to, well, i got to watch my television program, which is on at this time. How many times was your mind set on Him and how many times was your mind set on such insignificant things? You know, Jesus tells us that we're to lay up our treasures not on earth, but where? In heaven. The only way we can do that is if we are freed from the elementary principles of this world. We seek Christ. We think on Christ. We depend on Christ. Look at verse 3. For you have died. Hallelujah, we've died in Christ. And so now our life is hidden with Christ in God. Everything about you, everything that proceeds from your life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is bound to Him. You have to depend on Him for everything. Faith is not something you do once. 
Faith is a way of life. Because as Paul tells us in Romans 14, 23b, whatever does not proceed, proceed from faith is what? Sin. It's going back to a world that rejects him. So we seek Christ, we think on Him, we depend on Him, and then the final thing that Paul points us to is that we anticipate Him. Seeking Christ, thinking on Christ, depending on Christ, anticipating Christ. Look at verse 4. When Christ, who is your what? Life. We rejoice today because Jesus is alive. He is our life. And when He appears again, we will appear with Him in glory. Listen, if Jesus is not risen from the dead, then He's not coming back again. But He is risen from the dead. And so now, unto, through all eternity, our life is hid in Him. He is our life. And one day, He's coming back. As Paul, I'm sorry, as John writes in the book of Revelation, the apocalypse, the revelation, the revealing of not John's or not even of the end times, but it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice who this Christ is. John looks and sees Christ and he falls at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me. Saying, what? Fear not. I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died and look, I'm alive, what? Forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. What a wonderful hope. Now, what does this practically look like? What does it look like to live resurrection life? I'm going to give you some assignments this afternoon because I could keep going and we'd have another hour and a half long sermon. But I believe my mother-in-law is making a ham, so I will be brief. In the rest of this passage, Paul tells us what it looks like to put sin to death, and to put on likeness to Christ. Let me encourage you this afternoon, read chapter 3, the rest of the verses, up through verse 17. And Paul is going to explain the things that we put off and the things that we put on. Listen, if, if we're going to rejoice in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we're going to give thanks that He is no longer dead, but that He's alive, the best way we can show that reality in our lives is to live that resurrection life out. And that's what Paul is going to call us to do in the rest of this passage. So let me encourage you, read verses 5 through 17, meditate on it, and then evaluate your life. Listen, I know that life is tough in this world today. I know that there are difficulties that, that I know some of the difficulties that you're facing. I don't know all the difficulties that many of you are facing, but life can be hard. And we want to look for security and comfort and assurance in this hard life. 
Where do we find it? Not in ourselves. In Christ Jesus alone. And then we let that life of the living Christ transform us to be more like Him every single day. So it's great to bask in the glory of the resurrection like we do this Sunday. But unless it transforms us, unless it results in true change, then it shows that we really don't care about the resurrection of Christ. May we, by God's grace, be transformed to be more like Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this day. We thank You for Your Word and the truth it provides for us. Lord, take Your Word. Apply it to our hearts. Convict us, mold us, shape us more into the image of your Son. May we leave this, these doors different than when we first came in. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading his blood.